The countdown is on. This Wellness Couch podcast proudly brought to you by the Wellness Summit, August 17 and 18 in Melbourne, featuring the hottest topics in wellness, 5G, activism, fats, fasting, gut health, hormones, longevity, mindset, spirituality, and more. Join over 600 like-minded wellness enthusiasts, go into the draw to win over $10,000 in prizes, access the coolest wellness exhibition in town, and more. Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. It's time to kick your shoes off, put your heels up, and listen to how to live your best barefoot lifestyle with your host, the barefoot podiatrist, Paul Thompson. All right, and welcome back to the Barefoot Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Thompson, the barefoot podiatrist. And today I have a very special guest with me, one that's been a big inspiration uh, on my journey as a practitioner and and I guess has helped me get to where I am today. He probably doesn't know it, um, but definitely helped start me on the journey that I'm on with the Barefoot Movement now. He's an author of some amazing books like the, uh, Becoming a Supple Leopard, Ready to Run, Desk Bound, Waterman 2.0, the physical therapist, coach, speaker, all-round legend, founder of Mobility Wad, it's Kelly Starrett. Welcome to the program, Kelly. Well, thank you, and I'd say fan of the VB. No one appreciates the VB like an American. Like a good old seppo. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> VB? Nah. <laughs> Terrible stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, maybe we're in the wrong countries. I like cause, cause light better. So maybe we need to... Oh, you know, I have a lot of Aussie friends who like, like we call that C minus. Coors is C, Coors Light, C minus. Really? And I'll tell you what, you know, when we, if we're just going to get right into the really important things in life, um, first and foremost, you have to qualify beverages by, if I just put it, finished a game of beach volleyball, what would taste good? And for us, that really is, you know, one or zero. And you're like, mm, this, this wine is good, but you know, after volleyball, maybe it's not great. So, Coors Light, you're in there. <laughs> Champagnes, ice cold champagne, you're in there. What's the uh, the champagne of beers? I can't remember. The oh, don't don't Miller's. don't pretend like you don't know Miller's Highlight. Miller's Highlight. We know. We yeah, that's right. That's right. I did a season over in uh, in Colorado some years back, and that's all I could afford. So Miller's Highlight was. It was, it was a staple. <laughs> well, I, I went to school in Boulder. I, I think that really shapes, you know, a little bit of my approach for sure. I, you know, my father's a physician. My mother's a psychologist. Um, I grew up in Boulder. I, I came out of a tradition where we ran wild in the mountains, basically kayaked. We, I didn't go up in Boulder. I grew up in the mountains in Germany. I went to school in Boulder. And a girl I was uh, dating at the time was actually a rolfer. And went through Rolfing School with her. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, not only was I exposed to some early thinking about sort of fascia as a key component of the movement system, which I think is, you know, has been late to the game of understanding the, the complexity and systems approach of the body, especially the foot. Hmm. But um, also I was exposed to the horrors of Keystone Dry Ice, which is like people have heard of Coors, but there's a subset of even cheaper Coors which is the Keystone products, and that's all anyone could afford in college, and it was terrible. Also, I, didn't, I didn't even drink in college because I was like, this is what you guys are drinking, Keystone ice. It's terrible. <laughs> I'll try it next time I'm there. 
No, no, no. You're, if you, the, the goal of going to graduate school is that you get to level, like average up. You know, that's the point. You know, we, um, you know, I, I remember Juliet and I uh, having a moment. We were both, she was in grad school. I was trying to get into grad school and we were going to Costco and buying these terrible bulk bags of frozen chicken. And they were just like the worst, most, most, unhealthy, unhappy animals. And that's what we could afford at the time. And I think it's important to recognize where you come from. So you can start to remember that uh, as we try to untangle some of the complexities, you know, some of us grew up eating Costco bag chicken and some of us, you know, didn't have good shoes, you know, you got to put the context of the animal around the person. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying we were starving, but, uh, it wasn't good. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into it. Let's, so I've heard you talk about um, the body being a systems of systems has been something you've kind of spoken about a lot in the past. Let's get right into the foot. How does the foot fit into that systems of systems? Is it foot important? Is actually one, <clears throat> the foot is actually one of the best examples of what we're talking about because um, we can sort of break this down. If we look at the, the structure of the foot, the foot has a ton of redundancy built in. And thank goodness because this is, I mean, if we, if we even take a step back and pan back for a second, we can ask the question, like, why do you have a nervous system? You have a nervous system to perceive change in the environment. That's, that's why originally you have a nervous system. Can you perceive change? And the goal of the nervous system and the musculoskeletal system in a human is to get resources, to reproduce, to run away. And at what point is the foot not part of that equation? So the foot is so robust and it's such an extraordinary structure because it's crucial to the very survival of the human being. You know, that's why the ankle will take so much abuse before it raises its hand, much more than mm. say your lumbar spine or cervical spine. And again, these structures are designed to be 110 years old, no problem. But if we ask someone like, yeah, you may not lift heavy weights when you're 100, but you're still gonna walk when you're 100 a lot. So the foot has a ton of redundancies built in, much like the rest of the body. You have two kidneys, you can take a lung out and you can still climb Everest. This has actually been known to happen already. But if you look at the foot, what we tend to think of is, oh, there is a bony structure, right, that gives us all the gorgeous arches in the foot and all the ligaments that connect those bones. We've got the wonderful fascial, we'll call it connective tissue system of the, we, even, we can even put the windlass mechanism of the plantar fascia in there, right, as, as a component to this. Even the retinaculum, the band of connective tissue around the ankle, which mm. supports the structure of the ankle and is highly innervated. Plus, then add all the musculature, the crazy musculature of the foot. And so what we've got is system, 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 system. And I think when you see a flat foot, for example, one of the issues around the flat foot is that, hey, maybe we've stretched out the ligaments that are giving some structure to the foot, but we still can reclaim and remodel the fascia. We can still upregulate muscular function in those positions. And so subsequently, we've never met an arch that we haven't been able to create. Like not, mm. we've never met a person who hasn't able, wasn't able to recreate some kind of arch in their foot. At some point, even if you have maybe trashed your feet because you didn't grow up barefoot or you wore, you wore the shoes that you thought were culturally appropriate, then, and, and what you didn't recognize was that the way you were walking, how strong your feet were, how sensitive your feet were, you may have spent some of your early childhood credits, right? But the foot is so miraculous as a system of systems that we can still rely on different aspects of that system's approach, system structure, where we can still get plenty of function out of the foot. Hmm. I would add in, 
another system, which is to be the environment. So we sort of have the, the sliding surfaces, which is how we describe fascial systems, we have the muscular systems, maybe in the, 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 we have the connective tissue systems of the, of the bony structure. Then we can put in the environment. And so if you're wearing a high heel, if, you're, if you're, you know, your toe doesn't allow it to work like a big toe, it really sends up chains up the, up the whole system. And what's really interesting is about being a, a provider is that if you talk to a lot of master providers, they, you can sort of divide people into two categories. Do you start with the feet or do you start with the pelvis? And, and you're going to have to talk feet if you talk pelvis spine, mm. and you're going to have to talk pelvis spine if you're going to talk about feet. Because if the pelvis is all kittywampus and out of position, then you're going to see that the lower limb is going to struggle to create better stability, better function out of that compensation. And the feet are like, they're, the feet are so remarkable and so tolerant that we can do crazy things with our feet for miles and miles and miles and kilometers and kilometers for decades before they start to raise their hand and say, hey, this bunion is starting to kill me or I've injured my plantar fascia or my Achilles isn't attached to my uh, my calcaneus, right? Or or my navicular bones on the ground or I've had a Liz Frank fracture or all the things you guys see, <clears throat> what we want to say is, hey, let's not play the game of don't do this because of X might happen. Let's play this game that this is a position and these are our health patterns, behaviors that allow us to have the most function out of the human body. And that means at a, at a base level, even the foot. So, you know, if you're a runner and you go run at work at lunch and you go sit at your desk again, man, you're not going to decongest that foot. You're not going to decongest that ankle. And so even if you think you're engaged in some of the most healthy behaviors, and clearly running at lunch is fantastic, but our modern lifestyles, modern shoes, modern sort of just the, the way we interact with the environment causes some stresses or maladaptations to the system. And we, the problem is with us is that our bodies are so robust, and particularly the foot, that we, can, we miss the signs that maybe we're not living or moving enough or we're not having best function because the system is so tolerant. So what ends up happening then is that a lot of the providers, we see things at really extreme end ranges but and mm -hmm. end stages. But imagine if you take – we advocate, hey, you should walk around a lot, somewhere between eight and 12,000 steps a day. But let's just for the easy math. You said 10,000 steps a day, and that's to accumulate enough fatigue so you fall asleep. That's so you can decongest. So you can load your Achilles and load your feet. right? That's 70,000 steps a week. That's a quarter million steps a month. <clears throat> In four months, that's a million steps. Right, so all of a sudden, in a year, you've taken three million duty cycles on the foot, and what we and if you start to you know extrapolate that out in ten years, thirty million oscillations or, or foot patterns or foot positions, and so what we say again is it's it's by the time something rears its ugly head, we can be so far into the system that it's difficult for us to to sort of correlate cause and effect, and what we mm -hmm. like to do is say. Hey, it's difficult because the human being is so tolerant and such a complex system that I can say this footwear, this movement pattern, this behavior doesn't give you access to the full bounties of your physiology, doesn't allow you to be fully human, right? If you can't squat down and take a poop in the woods with your heels on the ground, then you've got some, some normal, normative, typical average range of motion to chase, and that's mm -hmm. okay. You know, that's, that's what we can say is that, hey, let's, let's have a conversation about what's possible, not don't do this because you may get foot cancer someday. <laughs> that sounds pretty extreme. That makes a lot of sense though. And do you think, well, 
like what I see in the clinic is people tend to wait till there there is that pain before they'll do anything about it. Yeah. I mean, what you were just saying is that you know this is obviously a build up um, gradually over our lifetime that eventually then snaps and causes pain or injury. Well, How- and, and let me stop you there because people don't actually come to see you when they're in pain. That's not true. People come in to see you because they can no longer walk. They can yeah, no longer yeah, do their job. Yeah, true. They can no longer <laughs> occupy their role in society. Their pain has gotten so bad that it's disrupted the quality of their life or their job or their role in sport. And that's a big deal, mm. right? <clears throat> so what, what we have to do is say, well, what are the mechanisms and what are the sensitivities around helping people resolve pain when it pops up? Because look, it's really difficult to be a monk living in your beautiful monk self where you get to go to Pilates and yoga and someone hands you the acai bowl and you, you're living this blissed out state. Meanwhile, you have the flu, right? Yeah. Your kids, you're still working, you're doing all the things. <clears throat> so pain is a really useful metric that I need to pay attention to something. And I think what I want and hope is that we can renegotiate and reestablish our relationship with pain. So when something hurts, I'm like, oh, I've got to take pay attention. It's an early warning sign. It's late to the game. Ideally, we can be engaged in movement practices and soft tissue and health practices that are that are sustainable, that are practicable. You know, hey, if I just take if I'm a runner, I take care of my feet every other day. I just roll on the roller. I can voodoo floss. I can smash my feet. I can take a look at my ankles. I can work up on the Achilles. It doesn't take that much maintenance. I, don't, I think I think what's what's crazy is that we if you with very little input and better movement quality. And, and that already is, of course, a slippery slope. Like, which movement input, what, what, what tissues do I, would I mobilize, and mm. what, what, what do you mean by movement quality? Well, I think it's a good example, for example, is that we say that, hey, when you're walking, you should be walking with your feet straight, right? Why? Because that gives you the most range of motion in the ankle. It gives you the best function out of the big toe. That's going to allow you to cut laterally, jump, and move. That's going to allow you to generate the most force if you had to jump. And you can imagine if you're a car – yeah, you can drive slowly with your wheels turned out a little bit. No problem. You're still going to be a Ferrari. But when you start to go fast, this creates problems. And so we end up making decisions about does this position transfer to increase function? Does this shape transfer across cohorts? So if I'm, if I'm saying, oh, we got to turn the feet out, well, I turn all the feet out. How much do I turn the foot out? Do I turn the foot out for just little kids? You know, there's, there's going to be pathologies where people have to turn their feet out when they mm. walk hip dysplasia, right? And, you know, all of, all of the things that we see down the stream. But rarely does we not have a person who can work their feet into straighter. Why? Because straighter feet gives me better access to my function in the long haul and transfers to the most position-shaped skills. So what we, what we want to do then is, is, hey, something's starting to hurt a little bit. I can be like, hey, can I improve or change my movement quality, right? And two – you know, sometimes because I'm a modern human, I just fall along the line. I, you know, my tissues start to become sensitized for some reason. We don't know what it is. You know, you've been working a certain way, walking a certain way, but all of a sudden you became 45 years old and you just had a, you know, your mother just passed away and you have a stressful week at work. Boy, I guarantee you that if you have a, a painful thing about ready to happen, the additional stress from your environmental load will light that thing up. And so, mm. well, again, difficult to control for all those things. So what we say is let's control for what we can control. And I think if we think about pain a little bit differently, if we come into it and say when something pops up, instead of saying, 
I don't know what to do about it. I'll wait till it gets so bad. I have to see my foot doctor, my physical therapist, right? Because it's interrupting my life. Maybe, just maybe I have this hypothesis that we can give people a set of tools to help them take a crack at changing, improving their quality of motion and restoring what is their normal or normative or typical or average or base range of motion. And Mm. I think that's really interesting. And that's a little bit different use of the word exercise. That's a little bit different use of the word Pilates and yoga, right? And what we need is a little bit more of a diagnostic tool or something what my mother-in-law says makes the invisible visible. And when, even if you don't know how the iPhone works at a battery interface, you know, glass software level, you still know how to plug it in and you still know how to turn it on and off and close out the apps. And we should do that. We as providers should be giving that away to the, to the body of the people that we're working with so that when there are real problems, because people do get injured, there are real injuries. And I see a lot of really, you know, I follow a couple of foot docs and I see a lot of really missed bad foot injuries that people kind of walk off bad fractures and all kinds of strange things. Right. Or people are wearing high heel shoes. Then they put on, you know, which is a Nike air, you know, with a huge one and a half centimeter differential. And then they jump into their, their, you know, track spikes or their, you know, their pitch spikes, and they have a Liz Franks fracture because suddenly that ankle doesn't flex because it's not used to flexing, and then they're going to use that little uh, little toe as another ankle joint. So, you know, I, what I think is, man, there's a lot of behaviors we could clean up, which means we could really help people feel better and, and miss a lot of pain because the rest of us who are providers, we're still going to see plenty of injuries because bad stuff happens to us. That's yeah. what skilled care is. The rest of this is, is defensive care and we shouldn't be doing it. And as far as giving people a tool, I think you've done a great job like with Mobility Ward. If you haven't checked it out, there is so much information on there and things you can do yourself to start chipping away at some of these things that Kelly's talking about, you know, getting back on top of your own body and your own movement. Just back to the feet straight thing before. So I put a, a post up. I don't know, a week ago about having your feet straight, check your alignment, got smashed by a lot of people, a lot of good comments, a lot of people jumping on, you know, saying that our feet shouldn't be straight. I get a lot of questions online about, like, I know our feet should be straight when we're walking or straighter than a lot of people would tend to be. Um, But when squatting, what, what do you think the best position is? I get a lot of questions about that around squatting. Well, what's really interesting about that is first and foremost, let's get into a position where you can squat. And mm-hmm. if you need to turn your feet out to squat, that's okay. But if you start to turn your feet out beyond about 12 to 15 degrees, you will see that your hip function will start to decrease. So what looks like weakness in the hip musculature is really just what we call positional inhibition. So if you squatted down with your feet straight and I try to bring your knees in, you test very strong. I turn your feet out a little bit, try to bring your knees in. I can slam your knees together over and over. You're so weak. So when people are saying, hey, should you squat your feet out? I'm like, should you be advocating for a less effective, less stable position? That's your, that's your argument. Hmm. Well, it turns out that that's the only position people can squat in. So what they're saying is, well, it's the only position I can squat in, so it must be the best. And that position doesn't make any sense. Well, okay. So let's, let's have a little bit more sophisticated conversation. Why do I squat? Am I just squat for fitness? Do I just squat up and down so I get my heart rate up? Great. Then it probably doesn't matter. Then it means that though if I'm training, what I'm really doing is patterning my brain. I'm teaching a behavior 
under a whole bunch of different contexts that my brain says, this is important skill, this is important behavior. So if you get on a bike, I expect your feet to be turned out on a bike. Go ahead and go on the Tour de France right now. Show me how many people are riding at elite level with their feet turned out. Well, you're like, well, that's different. It's a bike. I'm like, is it? Because the hip is coming into flexion and you're trying to generate the most force you can. So it turns out if we have you jump, in fact, the world, the highest standing broad jump in the NFL during the combine was just tested recently. And guess what? Guy had jumps with his feet straight. Why? Because in those positions, you can generate the most force. Mm-hmm. And if you even look at the Olympic lifters during the first push, the first pull, they all jump and land with a real or jump with a really straight foot. And what you'll see is, okay, if that's true, then it must hold true for all cases. Okay, so let me see a squat on a single leg. Oh, why'd you turn your foot straight? So it wasn't so you, in order to squat with a single leg, you made your foot straight. I don't get it. So you so what you'll see is that argument starts to fall apart a little bit. Also, you absolutely can squat with your feet turned out. Absolutely. But if you collapse your arch and your navicular bone is on the ground and your Achilles and your calcaneus is collapsed and your Achilles is going at and taking a 90 degree angle as it attaches to your heel and your knee comes in, that's less for me. I'm like, hey, that's a position of compensation. And once again, mm-hmm. yes, you absolutely can work there and you have a right to do anything you want. But you don't tell me it's the best position. Does anyone sprint in the Olympics with their feet turned up? I'll give you a hint. Three, two, one, no, they don't. They hit the ground with the foot straight because that's the position where we generate the most force and have the best function. And what's really interesting is that if we, we start to see that when people turn their feet out, you know, that's comfortable and easy. Well, let's apply that same thinking then to shoulder overhead, right? I should be able to put my shoulder, my arms straight up over my head, but if I can't, right? Would I just say, well, that's, that's all I got. So every time I press something over my head or try to do a pull up, I'm going to, I'm just going to have this, like you, what you think yourself is, no, you just can't put your arms over your head. Let's, let's improve that. Well, let's, let's start with the same amount of conversation around the foot. Hey, I believe you that you can't do it now, but if that's the only position you can get in, let's test that. Because what you're saying is that it's a better position than foot straight or foot straight ish, right? We have, we have some wiggle room. So the key here, though, is if I move your hip up to your chest, knee to chest, and all of a sudden you uh, <clears throat> are missing a huge chunk of your range of motion, you can't get your knee past 90 degrees. I'm like, well, of course, you're missing 50% or 30% of your range of motion. What are we talking about here? So <clears throat> if I can only bend my arm halfway up and my elbow is stuck bent and I have to do some weird things to eat dinner and you start asking about it, I'm like, well <clears> – <throat> This is the best way. And while you're like, well, why is it the best way? I'm like, well, it's because it's the only way I can eat. <clears throat> so you start to see that the argument starts to fall apart a little bit. If I look at your ankle and you have zero degrees of dorsiflexion, that means I bring your ankle down and you get stuck at 90 degrees. So you're just a right angle and you're missing 100% of your dorsiflexion. What are we talking about? <laughs> you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about is you have a highly restricted system that is so far off away from baseline from what? American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, American Academy of Thyroid Practitioners, right? Norkin and White, all of the range of motion standards, which include a standard deviation of normal, of typical, of what we think is base range of motion. Those goals, those movements actually fall well within those range of motion guidelines. So our assessment during our our level two course is, hey, you should be able to squat your feet straight, hip crease below the knee. That's not even all the way down ass to ankle. That's not even a full Olympic squat. That's just mid-range. <clears throat> and we have a quick test because 
a lot of times people will throw up a picture of a femur and they're like, look at the position of the femur and the neck of the femur and how it relates to the pelvis. Obviously, I have to squat my feet out. I'm like, okay, well, is that true? That means that you front squat, jump, land. And if you make your foot straight at any point, then once again, I've seen that you're making a choice, not an absolute. So we have a couple of things that we like to say when people say, well, what about the head of the femur? I'm like, show me the pelvis. Show me the torsion of the femur to the knee. Show me the torsion of the knee to the foot. That system will compensate through Wolf's law of bony growth and maturation. It will remodel itself every 18 months. So the whole, we turn over our structure of our skeleton every 18 months. And so what we're starting to see is that you'll see old exotosis, big bony growths on the calcaneus will change. You'll start to see structures change and realign. So I believe you that you got here now. The last thing I would say is, look, my wife has had double hip replacements because she had hip dysplasia as a kid and juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. So she had really shallow I wouldn't say uh, just challenge hip positions. She squatted and won a couple world championships with her feet turned out, right? But now that she's had hip replacements, guess where her feet are? Straight. Mm. Okay. So our quick test is if you want to find out if you can get your feet straight, because your hip is a ball and socket joint, follow me, that means it doesn't matter where the ball and socket is and how much flexion of the femur it is because it's a ball and socket. So if you're able to stand with your feet straight, then you can squat with your feet straight. If you're able to stand with your feet turned in, you can squat with your feet straight. But if you can't get your feet straight, I believe you. And what I haven't even looked at rotation of the hip. And so what I end up seeing is that people are doing a lot of what we call apologetics. And what we think is happening is that people are like, hey, you're, you're shaming people. All movement is good movement. Let's just celebrate that we're just moving and that's so great. And that's important. And then the next thing is, if I teach you or let you get away with something because I don't know how to correct it, it's not part of my language, I don't know what the compensation looks like, I'm not skilled in Olympic lifting, kettlebell, sprinting, rowing, all these things, then what I, I'm actually making an incomplete statement. So what I'll say is, yeah, you can do that. And if you have to see your foot doctor because you've got a gigantic bunion or you pull your Achilles or your foot is collapsed or you've torn your plantar fascia or... Then, and I'm going to say that was of our own making. And that's because humans function better with the foot straight, period. And the more that you sit, the less hip extension capacity you have, which means you can't bring your knee behind your hip like when you're walking in a lunge. And the way you compensate for that is that you turn your leg out. Mm. And so suddenly, at the end of your stride, your leg is turned out. And then as you bring your leg through on the swing, how does that foot contact the ground? Turned out. How many steps do you take a day? 10,000. How many times did you practice that movement? 10,000. How many times has your body adapted to those positions and reinforced that fascia and connective tissue? Look, we just learned recently that when you exercise, the first thing that happens isn't necessarily protein synthesis. The first thing that happens is that your body reinforces the connective tissue and fascial systems of your body first. It's like your brain says, oh, we exercise. What we should do first is make a bigger, stronger structure. That way, when we start to overlay efficiency, neuroefficiency in the, in the engine, the musculature, when we start to generate more force through the tissues, we'll have better springiness through the fascia and we'll be able to harness that energy more effectively through the musculature because we've had reinforced connecting tissue. So imagine if you exercise, 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 don't exercise, don't have a movement practice, don't take your joints to the full range of motion, you become stiff. 
the first thing that happens every single time is your brain's like, I know what this is. Let's make this position stiffer. And sometimes your ankles get really stiff. And sometimes you're missing hip range of motion because why your brain and body said the first thing we should do after exercise is reinforce the collagen connective tissue system so that we could be better prepared to handle larger loads, springier loads, and more musculature through the force generated through the musculature. So <clears throat> you start to tie that all in and I'm like, yeah, this, this was not created overnight. If you come to my gym, what you'll see is Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of middle-aged people, young people, old people, Olympians, world champions, world record holders with their feet straight. And again, if you don't believe it, because it doesn't matter because you're going slow, that's fine. It may not be, as a provider particularly, it may not be worth your time because you're not going to get paid for it as a provider, right? It's complicated because you're in a room with a carpet and a low ceiling and you're not actually training people to move right? You're not even training these skills. So where, where is it appropriate? It's appropriate if we are talking about building a body that's going to be 110 years old. And it's appropriate if we're talking about someday you might want to go fast. So it's easier if we just protect you. Now, hang on. Injury rates. Kids under 14, their ACL injury rates up 400%. Why do you reckon so that is? How's that going? Well, I'll tell you. What I think it is, is we a whole host of things tissue health, movement capacity, robustness of the tissues. But if you jump and land with your foot turned out and you, because you practice squatting in that position and you don't have full access to your function and your hip is weaker and your knee slams in with your fit turns out, that's an ACL tear. And so what I'm, you know, we teach kids, check this out. We teach, teach kids to jump and land when they're gymnasts, young gymnasts with their feet together. That way their knees hit because they're too weak to actually control the landing. And they're in what we call a blocked or constrained environment, which means they're already safe. You jump and land with your feet together, you're, you're safe. Your arches don't collapse, you don't destroy your knee, boom, you're safe. If foot turned out was the best position, why do we teach the military when they're parachuting to land with their feet together? I'll, I'll give you a hint. Because when you jump and land with your foot turned out at high speed, you can't control that force. You're gonna jump off a really tall object, aka an airplane, and you land, you're gonna have a lot of ankle and knee injuries. But if your feet are together, <clears throat> you're not gonna have ankle and knee injuries. So what we've gotta do is a better job of stitching together all of the movement narratives. And it's difficult to do the research on that, right? Because mm. you see people with huge bunions and incomplete ankle function and they're slow as snot when they run, but they're not, they don't have pain, right? So once again, what I would like to do is stop saying, is this about pain? Because what we're not saying is, hey, you should squat with your feet straight because you may not have pain. That's not what we're saying at all. We're saying you should squat with your feet straight because that's better human function that transfers to better function in the long haul. Last test anyone can do. <clears throat> you see the monster walks that we give. We put a rubber band around people's legs and then have them shuffle side to side. Mm -hmm. Everyone shuffles side to side with their feet straight. Why is that? Because that's the straight position where their feet are strong. No one ever monster walks in the same position that they squat in. Why is that? Yeah, that's because that position sucks. And uh, it's okay that that's a starting place, the same way we can put skill into everything. And more importantly, mm. it's not important that we get it. It's not vital that we get it right today. We have time to improve it. And I think that's, that's really the message that we want to tell people is that, hey, we have really good insight into what sustainable, robust, bomb-proof body shapes look like and how to do that for 100 years. 
And we have a lot of time to get it better. At no point do you stop healing. At no point does your body throw in the red towel, you know, that you're, you're giving up. So it's not – the thing we're going to do today is squat. You know, if we have to turn your feet out a little bit, great. But we're not going to let you collapse your arch. We're not going to let you create compensation through that big toe. If you stand with your feet straight, look at your pressure through your foot. Ball of foot to heel can be really even. Turn your feet out. And you'll lose pressure through your big toe immediately, which is corresponds to turning your quadriceps off. That mm. big toe is crucial. That's why in yoga, we say put your big toe on the ground, right? In Tadasana. And so what you're seeing is already you start to disrupt the fundamental patterns of fascia, of musculature. Um, you know, the term for this is chirality. There's actually a rotation built into the leg that helps it, you know, generate passive torsion. Well, I was going to say it's really hard to create torsion. With the foot out, yes, and all that's the, the um, and I mean, we think of torsion in an external rotation for lifting the arch, but in a gait pattern, we also need to control internal rotation. So, with an eccentric load through all the you know tibant, um, all the that's right extensors to control gait patterns. But if you're in an external rotated position through the foot, really hard to control that to its you know to its optimal level. Yeah, so you slam your your, slam your navicular bone navicular to the ground, down, yeah. and and you end up with posterior tibialis tendonitis, or you avulsive tendonitis, or you <laughs> best case, right? <laughs> and what you're seeing is that you just don't have access to the full capacities in those positions, right? So what again, what you're saying is, hey, I'm valuing a position that doesn't give me full the full gift of how amazing my body is, and that's mm. fine. I'm sure you can be really fine, but again. We are asking, what is the, what are the positions that transfer to the most skills? And if I'm training, then I'm training for something. And theoretically, I'm training to pick up a new sport. You know, And so I think when we start to stitch that together, I think you're absolutely right around saying, hey, look, you know, the body through two and a half million years of evolution, even 10,000 years as modern people, you know, the structure really indicates the ways we should be moving. Mm. And, and I think... It's just logic to say this is a better shape. And I, it's also okay to say, hey, I don't know what your injury history is. I don't know what your environmental history is. I don't know what your daily load is. But we can be chasing restoring our normal position or, or average position or, or, or birthright capacities. And sometimes you're not going to be able to because you have a bone spur or you had to wear combat boots or you tore your ACL or had a bad injury. Injuries happen. That's okay. And that's a different conversation. But what we're talking about first and foremost is – is saying, hey, what shapes allow me to learn new skills more quickly? Which shapes mm. transfer to better function? Which shapes allow me to teach kids that transfer skills universally forever? I must say, though, with the, with the kids stuff, it's pretty scary. I'm seeing in the clinic, um, you know, just more and more kids coming in that move terribly. They walk terribly. They can't get into – they're weak, yeah, but they're really locked up. Um, you know, from my point of view, I see it um, – the shoes are getting in the way. Like you said earlier, you know, they're going from these, you know, one to two centimeter heels at school. Then they'll go and play some football on the weekend or or do some running on the beach or something with, with no heels. And it's like their body's getting really confused and they're not able to connect the foot and the hip anymore. And it's leading to issues, lots of issues in kids that, you know, I don't, I, I hadn't seen it as bad as it is now. I guess they're sitting a lot more now too. There's, you know, backpacks and, and all these things that are getting in the way. Do you see the same sort of thing? Like, I mean, you said there's a, a big issue with, 
with kids, um, with injury rates, but you know, what's your well, I take on? I, I, yeah, there's something happening. I think we're seeing, um, you know, one is a lot more sedentary behavior. So here, yeah. here's a little test you can do. Every kid who has a phone has a built-in movement tracker into the phone. And it doesn't matter if it's perfect because it's the same one, right? So if you pull out a child's iPhone, so I have a 13-year-old, 14-year-old daughter. Her iPhone is always hanging out of her back pocket, right? <laughs> and what I'll tell you is that in, we've gone into high schools and their kids always have their phones with them. And the phone picks up the movement. So do a spot check and see how much movement they're getting. And you're going to see that they're sometimes moving two to 3,000 steps a day, not even six to 10,000 steps a day. The mm -hmm. body needs input in order for it to express itself at a cellular level. This is called mechanotransduction. And so coupled with the fact that it's not a kid's fault, they're a perfect product of the expression of the environment. That's all they're doing. They're going through the world. They're asked to sit more. They're asked to sit in front of the computer more. The environment tells them to sit down. We play video games. We watch. We're driving our kids. We're not, we don't have the freedom. You, know, you can pine for the old days. But what you can say is, hey, there are some things that were fundamentally correct that we're having to now formally teach, including kids are specializing much earlier. Right, so they do one sport, one sport, one sport, mm. and you know we just had a Twitter conversation with uh, Eric Cressy and uh, another brilliant physio named Sue Falzoni, and and another coach named Travis Mash, an Olympic lifting coach, and all of us were saying, hey, we notice that there is a change, and it may be a normal change, it may be just this is what happens at every generation, but there's something starting to uptick in injuries, and and Eric Cressy, for example, who is a baseball trainer said very famous coacher coach of really high level baseball players was like dude we're seeing torn lats we've never seen a torn lat in our history and all of a sudden torn lats are here and what our friend sue falzoni who was the first woman head athletic trainer in major league baseball she's like amelia Earhart. she said we're seeing the first generation of specialized athletes coming through the system and it's an experiment that kids aren't playing multiple sports they're mm. not exposed they're not just loaded enough and now they're very, very specialized animals and they're coming up and they're turning out to be like, like racehorses. They get a little bit of a, you know, cold, boom, you got to put them down. They spray, you know, because they're so hyper-specialized that, that we're seeing is that they're just not robust enough. And to your point, you know, as we talk about just movement and in the shoe, you have to load the foot. There's really good research that came out a couple of years ago out of some physios that showed that strong feet had higher volume than weak feet, as if bigger muscles might be stronger muscles. And, uh, you know, of course, everyone's like, yes, of course. And what we saw is that people actually have weak feet. Why? As we know that structures that are braced permanently become weak. So if you wear a back belt all the time, your back will become weak. If you wear a shoulder brace all the time, your shoulder will become weak. You're going to use the brace. That's, that's what the back of your chair is. It's a brace. Hmm. Well, if your shoe is always being supported, you know, the arch Romanoff, the great running coach, famously said the arch is a non-weight-bearing surface. And so if you're supporting your arch, then you don't have to turn on the musculature of your leg to support your arch. Someone's supporting it for you. The foot will become weak. Put in some Crocs. Put it in. And then, and then what you're seeing is we have a system that needs mechanical input in order to express itself normally at a, at a cellular level, not getting it. And the metaphor for that actually comes from another friend who says that if you put orcas, orca whales, in captivity, eventually that fin will fold over. That's called folded fin syndrome. And what's happening is that because that fin isn't 
habitually chronically loaded through the orca, hunting, swimming, playing, fighting, being an orca, guess what? The collagen becomes weak. And, then the, and because you've changed the environment of the orca and the orca is spending all its time at the surface, that fin is exposed to a lot higher gravitational load. So you've changed the environment of the orca and you've degraded the tissues of the orca because the orca can't swim and hunt and be an orca. That is us in a nutshell as modern humans. We're becoming mm. folded fin syndrome orcas, except we, we have this and we're not trapped in a cage. So, I mean, you know, the, the key here is it's difficult to do longitudinal research on humans because there's, our behaviors are so complex yeah. and there's so many environmental. So what, we have, what we're left with is the cues about what better function gives us, right? So dude, wear the high heel shoes all you want but you're not going to be on my kickball team, you know, do wear the Crocs, do whatever you want, but you know, you're not going to go to the Olympics. You're not going to make that club soccer team. And if you get injured, we're going to have this conversation then. So I'll wait around for you. you no, know, but in the meantime, again, for us, we really think that the, the wrong conversation is fear mongering. That's the wrong conversation, the right conversation. Let's move. And then let's begin to refine your movement. So what's your take on footwear from what I'm getting, what I'm hearing you're not a fan of heels and, and things. Like, do you think modern footwear has a lot to answer for? Um, I think we could we call it the modern industrial complex, the the medical industrial complex, the food industrial complex, the military industrial complex, and we could call it the shoe industrial complex, right? So, the real line is if you look, um, there's actually a great quote from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which says the best shoe is for child foot development is no shoe. Secondary to that, it's the shoe that interrupts with the natural function of the foot the least. So that's pretty much like a moccasin. Put a thin leather thing on a kid so they can feel the ground and they get the input. You know, one of the measures that's really good around predicting injury, believe it or not, is looking at base of support and postural sway. So if I stand you on a pressure plate and the kids at the Sparta sports system, Sparta, Sparta science system have this, I then have you close your eyes and stand on one leg, which looks like an old physical therapy test. Single standing one leg, eyes closed. It's called the Solek. Well, well demonstrated, excellent. And what you'll see is that people who are really shut down in their ability to feel, it's called interoception, they don't have the proprioception, the positional awareness feel, and their ankles are stiff, they fall over. That's not a problem if you're 23. It's a huge problem when you're 78 and a yeah. fall means likely a fracture. And so what you're seeing is if you put someone's barefoot on that thing, they get some input. You put them on a big squishy shoe, they can't even tell what's going on in that thing. So I think we can choose shoe wear specifically for certain tasks. And I used to think, hey, we should probably all be at zero all the time, right, in all our sports. I'm like, nah, Olympic lift, give yourself some heel. You're going for a run? How can we make you run faster? But when you get out of that, let's be flat. If you're squatting, you have to use a heel to squat. That's like wearing a belt all the time or always, you know, I only draw, I only turn to the left in my car. It's really strange. So I can use a tool to achieve a certain outcome for a performance thing. But then the rest of the time, I should either be barefoot or I should be in the flattest, most flexible thing that allows my feet to breathe and allows my my to work hard and I think that's really what this comes down to and by the way everyone has the right to try to wear cute shoes and I'm so grateful that all of our friends in the we'll call it minimalist shoe wear industry 
the shoes are getting much better looking. And I'll know we've hit a tipping point when my wife will choose the pair of <laughs> zero drop hippie shoes, right? Barefoot shoes because they look cute. I have right? the same in the meantime, challenge. She's like, they're, they're, they're too, she's like, you want me to wear those creepy five toe finger shoes? No way. So, I've got um, the same challenge with yeah. my wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we think it's just be better. And, and barefoot is always best. You know, barefoot is best. So, um, you know, one of the ways that we hack the system with some of our professional teams, because our guys are always having a shoe wear, is that they train in the, in the gym barefoot. Yeah. And some of that is so that the coach can actually see what's going on. So in training, we'll all agree that rounding your back is not a great way to train, to lift things, to squat. Why? Because it doesn't transfer very well. You can't take a big breath very well. Your pelvic floor doesn't work very well. You can't, it doesn't transfer energy very well, right? It's just not effective. You may also, if you have weak discs, maybe, maybe sensitize a disc in that position. There's just a lot of reasons why we think that's poor. Hmm. If you saw what was going on in people's shoes, you had x-ray vision, and you could see what was going on in the foot, in the shoe, you would be horrified. But you can't actually see what's going on, so it's not it's out of sight, out of mind. And I think that's part of the issue, right? Yeah, for sure. Now, you train a lot of elite athletes and military and the like, and with gait patterns, so how someone walks, how do you, it's a skill, obviously, like walking is just a skill, it's a habit. How much, how much um, of an issue do you think gait patterns are when it comes to performance? Like, is gait something we need to be working on? Like, we're doing, like you said, you know, 30 million steps um, over, you know, 30 years. How important is that we get the, get the gait pattern right? Well, I think it's one of the things that we can say, old maxim, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And so think of, you know, walking as slower running. And so if I went from walking to faster running, I'd want the pattern to be the similar. Foot yeah. straight, being able to extend the hip, right? Have full, full, full dorsiflexion through the toe, right? And what you're going to see is a lot of times the walking is, is like saying, hey, I want you to hold this one pound dumbbell. Move it any way you want. People can do anything they want with that one-pound dumbbell. It doesn't weigh anything, right? You can get away with murderous positions in that shape. It doesn't matter. That's the genius of the pink dumbbells at the uh, exercise studio, right? It just doesn't matter. But for us, I want positions and shapes and skills that transfer and allow me to pick up better, better new sports, better shapes, allow me to be stronger, access my physiology. So if I jump into a yoga class, I'm there. If I jump into a Pilates class, I'm there. I go to CrossFit, I'm there. I go to Olympic thing, it doesn't matter. Running, cycling, I'm, I'm, the one way I've trained is the always way I've trained. So what we can think of is, yeah, you can walk pretty much any way you want for a long time until you can't. Because you know people come to see you because why? It hurts when I walk. Well, what's the big deal? I've always walked this way. I don't know. It's just weird. It's one day it started hurting. Take this ibuprofen. Take this codeine. Take this CBD, right? Oh, here's an insole. Here's a splint you got to wear. You got to have this orthopedic shoe. I'm sorry if you look like you're 105 and you're <laughs> 25. You know? And so what you see is that you can certainly live that way. But um, what we're finding in our clinical experience is that you don't have to live that way. So gait is slow motion. It's easy to understand. Um, you know, and I think when you watch people walk barefoot, I think one of the really interesting tells about gait Right, and I had to learn the El Rancho gait pattern, right? Which was we had to memorize every joint angle of the body, 
in every phase and stance of gait from initial contact to toe off, right? The whole thing. And I was like, this is a whole waste of time. And I think this guy's overstriding and over and, and he's wearing shoes. So he's already overstriding. So here's an example for you. Go ahead and just video yourself, videotape yourself walking. Then don't wear shoes for three days. Do it. Just don't put on shoes. You're on vacation. I'm going to put on shoes for three days. Then videotape yourself walking again. And tell me you're the same person. You'll strike the ground differently. Your foot will look different. You won't even strike in the same position on your heel. Your cadence will go through the roof. You'll start to self-correct automatically and change. And so what you're telling me is this gait pattern is normal if I wear this shoe, mm. which is like saying, you know, I can lift this way as long as I wear this thoracic brace, these knee sleeves, this belt, these high heel lifters. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm protected. And, and I think what you'll see is we can come to understand gait as a metric of, hey, it's not important immediately, but we can always improve it. So with our daughters, we say things like, hey, we've got we to walk your feet straight. And we have one daughter with a higher Q angle, which is the quadriceps angle, the angle from hip to knee. And she's a little bit more valgus in terms of how her knees work. She has to work a lot harder on getting her feet straight. And my other daughter, who's built like, you know, straight up and down like the Tin Man and Wizard of Oz, right? She has no Q angle at all, doesn't have to work at it at all. And so, you know, some of these things, it's okay to say, hey, we believe this to be a skill and this will protect you and inoculate and more importantly, give you access to your body. Because if, if you don't think it matters, does making the soccer team matter? Does cutting and jumping reacting matter quickly, right? What matters to you? And at, what, at some point, I'll come back to the basics and I'll improve those basics and what matters to you will get better. And that's, I think, is really difficult for people to understand. You know, at our gym, we've been open for 15 years. And, you know, we have done 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 sessions. The number of athletes I've seen people from, we have, an, we have a master's program, we have a children's program, we, see, we have an adaptive athletics program. And the, the principles of the human body remain constant. And I think that's really what the conversation is. And if you go back into martial arts, if you go back into our movement traditions and movement practices, all the cues are there for us, mm. right? Because people have been obsessed with going faster and lifting heavy weights forever. And let me give you an example. Um, one of our friends is this guy named Hapthor, right? He's the mountain on Game of Thrones. And a couple years ago, there's this famous mast in like Iceland, where some Viking god walked this mast three steps. He put this huge mast on his back and he walked three steps. And it was like a thousand years ago and it was legend. And Hapthor, with every advantage he has known to man, every tr enhanced training aid, every recovery system, walked this, the mast four steps. So in a thousand years, we've gotten one more step out of the human. Instead of three steps, he took four steps which tells me that people have been really strong and really fast for a really long time. And that also tells me that people have been obsessed with the issues of being a human for a really long time. And I think it's really easy to confuse our modern sensibilities, modern trappings with how have we always done things. And that's not always the case in terms of we've always done it this way, so we can continue this way. But there are so many cues for us in our movement traditions You'd be shocked that, uh, you know, go ahead and collapse your arch when your foot is turned out and jump into ballet class. You're going to get slapped, right? So, uh, you know, that's part of the aesthetic of ballet. Can you work in this really weak position and be powerful there? That's part of the aesthetic, you know? So, you know, you know um, is gait matter? Of course. You know, does it all matter? Of course. Does it matter differently at different times in your life and development? 
you know, cause one of my questions, I'm like, well, maybe it doesn't matter for you. What about this growing child? Does that matter for them? Mm. You know, it seems like it matters more to them. It's funny. I, um, my son, he's in kindergarten this year. That's his first year at school. So in the first term, I've had the school shoe policy changed. So now they can wear these barefoot shoes. And part of my meeting and conversation was around standing desks. I know you're a big, uh, big believer in standing desks for schools. You've got the Stand Up Kids program. And the school was like, well, yeah, we've got standing desks. And I was like, oh, okay, I haven't seen them. She said, oh, they're in year six. You're in the, the older classes. I said, oh, okay, how many kids use them? She said, yeah, not many. They all whinge about being sore. And I said, why don't you try putting them in kindergarten and see what the retention rate is through the rest of the you know, thing. And she's like, oh, oh damn you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, like we're just saying. And, and you know, and what you're, what's interesting about that is really saying is like, look at our development as children. So just from a logic fallacy issue. We move, we move, we move. We tell our kids to get up and down off the ground. You know, let's play, let's move, and then we're like sit. Yeah. Get to, get to kindergarten, and then it's all about you know first grade is sitting. Yeah. And and I think what's interesting is that it's not about sitting versus standing. It's about moving or not moving. Yeah. And I think that's the conversation we want to have is that as Juliet says, you know, we want to give people a movement rich environment. We want to give the kids choice so yeah. that they they're not just standing like robots. That's bad, right? Not moving is the problem. Yeah. The kids can put their foot up, they can dance around, they can hinge. They're, they're, the desk is adjusted for them, so it's the right height. They have a place to lean and perch and support. Everyone can take a full breath. No one slouches. They get better attention. Would the kids want to sit on the floor? They sit on the floor, which it turns mm-hmm. out to also be a hugely important skill as a human too. Yeah, for sure. Now, just to finish up, can you tell us a bit about Mobility Ward? What is it? How can people get involved with it? Yeah, well, I tell you, one of the exciting things is um, Mobility Ward is our – we tried to create a resource like a Betty Crocker cookbook for people around movement theory and musculoskeletal pain, really low level stuff. There's a lot of things that we think aren't skilled, don't require a physical therapist, don't require a chiro, don't need a podiatrist, right? You need to be able to, you can always ask those people, but we think you should be able to take a crack at this yourself. Yeah. September 3rd, we're actually becoming a new company called the ready state because we have 10 years of doing programming and working with countless organizations. And so we're restructuring and reorganizing how people can use the site through, through our site. So if you have pain, you can come in and say, my knee hurts. And we can give you some techniques and tools to take a crack at fixing yourself. You can also say, hey, my knee hurts. And I did that. And we're like, go see a doctor. Hey, maybe you have a diagnosis. Maybe you are saying, hey, I'm running. How can I improve my running skills? So there's a lot of ways. Or I just want to take care of myself and feel good. You can do the daily mobilizations. We have 30-minute follow-along soft tissue sessions, 20 minutes, 10 minutes. And so what we really try to do is allow people, because things have changed so much, we've allowed people to upregulate their own skills and come and interact with our content a little bit differently based on their choice. And the reason we come to Ready State is that we're not just a mobility workout of a day. We get to work with experts in sleep and nutrition and women's health and hydration. And, and, and what we really feel like is, hey, what's important to you? We can help you be better at what's important to you. And, you know, turns out when we started using the word mobility, we were the only people in the world using the word mobility. I guarantee you. we would mobilize tissues as therapists. But mobility is a word that we coined and really popularized. Mm. Right? Of course, mobility existed, but it didn't exist anywhere. If you search pre-mobility WOD, and then WOD, W-O-D, stands for workout of the day. And when we were the first WOD, we started this. We were, there was no other WODs. 
now there's sobriety wad and and bro wad and there's there's so there's probably three or four hundred different blank wads and it's very confusing. So we again we feel like September third we're relaunching the Ready State. My genius CEO wife is uh you know we'll have an Android app. It's so easy to interact with our content and really what we're trying to do is is start with this conversation of saying hey this is about social justice. You have the right to make yourself feel better and to improve the health of your family and community. And then if that doesn't work, go get some help. But you'll be surprised that when someone shifts the agency back to you, we can really change how you move and interact with your environment. And that's that's really the goal. That's awesome. So how can we find the ready state? Will it still be under mobility well, what or yeah? Well, if you went to mobility WOD workout today, you'll find us. So get directed. So mobility wad. Dot com and we're at mobility wad on the socials and eventually become the ready state but right now you can find us any either way will get us there awesome thank you so much kelly um so if you yeah, if you haven't already jump on check out mobilitywad.com follow along on socials um i've learned a heaps from today we had a little chat the other day there was a bit of a mix-up in um in getting this interview hooked up and we had a little chat and kelly was pretty uh pretty fiery about bunions and and how they're our own fault not our mother's fault so (laughs) (laughs) sorry mom over the last uh few days i've learned a lot from you it's it's been great so thanks again kelly appreciate your time look forward to seeing the ready state i've already i've loved the mobility ward for a long time now so it's gonna be great to see where this all heads well and i'll tell you Two things. One is that you're a legend. I know that your uh, your kid got you infected with some terrible disease, and you're still <laughs> on. You're amazing. And then secondarily, I just you know we're have always been blown away by is that when we give people the right information, they know how to apply it, or they figure out or learn how to apply it to their communities, their their training groups, their families. And so we're really trying to be agnostic in that the way we think you should move, it's up to you. But the movements and principles and the patterns and how your tissues work and some of the environmental stuff. That's a little bit, that is, we have best practices sort of laid out for us already and they continue to be refined. So, you know, mm-hmm. you can use this information to improve yourself. The, the message is that people say, hey, you, you fixed my knee, you fixed my feet. And we're saying, we've never met you, but you fixed it. And all you needed was the right push. And uh, something's changing. So we're, we're, we're thrilled. And, you know, the amount of time I've spent talking about feet I had, had no idea as a boy, and especially as a physical therapist, that I'd become so foot obsessed, but I am foot obsessed and I appreciate you people. Oh, thanks, man. Like I said at the start, you know, you've been a huge inspiration to me. Um, podiatry school was definitely not around movement. It was around orthotics <laughs> and shoes. And after coming across some of your stuff years ago and, and coming to some of your seminars, it changed how I viewed the world of podiatry and I've been on this mission to just to change podiatry into more of a movement-based um, love you know, it. thing. So, it's weird. Everyone has feet. I love well, it. They do. we got to get them right. <laughs> now, I appreciate it, Kelly. Thanks, Thank you so much. Cheers, brother. The 2019 Wellness Summit is almost here. I love being at these events. They're always such a great, positive environment. It's been really great to um, listen to like-minded people and to um, meet a few people, actually. I've been to every summit. And I've been to everyone, and I'll always keep coming. It's always inspiring. It's been a real eye-opener. We're actually signed up to go to the breakthrough now. It's very motivating. I think it's great to listen to people who are inspired. 
and there's always something to learn and something to take away. I think uh, for myself and giving myself that um, opportunity to, to learn. There's so much going on in life and everything that you can get distracted and forget the things that you should be doing and this always reminds you to get back on track and, and um, to focus on the things that are important, a holistic health. Just do it, yeah, just yeah, suck it up and do it. It's, uh, it could be life changing, yeah. I would say it's awesome and it's the start of changing your life. Come along, see what it's about and enjoy it. It's an amazing event with like-minded, positive people and you can't help but um, walk away feeling great. Positive Mentor presents the 2019 Wellness Summit, August 17 and 18 in Melbourne. Can you afford to miss out? Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.